Good morning and greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this morning. This morning I felt led to speak on a subject that isn't maybe the uh, easiest or uh, most positive to, to speak on. Appreciate your prayers on my behalf. Felt led to bring a message on Satan, our adversary, the one who continually is seeking to draw us away from God. And I was impressed with uh, how little we know about Satan, but yet how much the Bible has to say about him and about his work. In a verse that... Uh, I guess it's, it's kind of a key verse as I, as I think about this, this subject. It's 1 Peter 5, 8. And I just ask if you'd turn there, we'll, we'll read this. Uh, and, and I'll just say now that I'm going to be reading a lot of verses this morning. Some of them I'll give you opportunity to turn to, some I won't. But I'd, I'd like us to look at this first because I believe that it is key for us. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. It's a picture here of our adversary prowling about, looking for opportunities to draw people away from God, And it's, it's, uh, it should be a sobering thing for us to think about. And that's what I want us to do this morning. We're not going to be able to cover everything that the scripture contains regarding Satan, but I hope that we can gain a better understanding. And also, most of all, that we can be better prepared to resist him and to stand against him as he prowls about seeking whom he may devour. I'd like to consider, first of all, who Satan is and where he came from. While the Bible says a tremendous amount about Satan and about the, his work, it does not give us much information about who he is or where he came from. But there are several passages that do give us some insight. And I also believe that uh, through our understanding of God and the fact that God is um, the creator and God is infinite and God is holy, there are some uh, assumptions that we can make based upon God's character as well that help us to understand who Satan is. So we believe that everything that exists was created by God. And we know from Scripture that God's nature is holiness. There is nothing within God that is unholy or sinful. And we know also from Scripture that everything God created was good. 
It was not until the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden that sin entered the world and, and the curse of sin came upon God's perfect creation. So everything that God created was good and was holy. So we can conclude that Satan must have been part of God's creation and he must have originally been created as a good, holy being that somehow ended up being an adversary of God and of all that honors God and follows after God's ways. I invite you to turn to Jude 1. I guess there's just one chapter in Jude. So Jude verse 6. In Jude 6, we have this little tidbit. It says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. This verse does not specifically mention Satan, but it mentions the fact that there was apparently a group of angels who at some point fell from the position that God had created them for. It says that they left their own habitation and that they, they kept not their first estate. So they, it indicates that there was, there was created angelic beings that somehow turned away from God. It would seem that it was a conscious choice that they abandoned the place and the work that God had created them for. Again, we don't know much, but that would, tend, would seem to indicate that. Also, Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, there is a prophecy regarding the king of Babylon. And in that prophecy, there are some verses that seem that have some connotation that would seem to apply to someone other than the king of Babylon. I'd like to read Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into, into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So it's referring to Lucifer, the morning star, as having fallen from heaven. And there's, read some commentaries on this, there's a little controversy between different commentators on who this is speaking of. But something I found that was really interesting that I'd never thought of before, and it's not an original thought with me, but Jesus used very similar language to this when he was on earth 
one time when he was speaking of Satan. After the, he had sent the disciples out two by two, and they came back and reported to him, and Jesus said this in Luke 10, 18. He, and he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. It's interesting, the, the similar language between these verses in Isaiah 14 and what Jesus said. Also here in Isaiah's prophecy, we see him speaking about pride and the desire to be exalted above or to be, to be like God or above God. And that fits of what we know of Satan and his work. He's in continual opposition to everything of God, everything that is holy. Trying to set himself up in the world and in our individual lives in a position that is higher than God. So again, I believe that we can conclude that Satan was a created being, originally created as part of God's perfect, holy, sinless creation, but through, through pride, through a desire to exalt himself, him and a group of other angels was cast out of heaven. And he became the adversary of God. Now I'd like to consider... Satan's work. I'd like to turn to Genesis 3, where we first see him tempting mankind. They're in the Garden of Eden. I'd like to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said that ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God knows God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So we see the first temptation here recorded, Satan coming and in the embodiment of the serpent, coming and tempting Eve. Now I want us to think a little bit about Satan's work and the nature of his temptation. We see that the first thing he did in his temptation of Eve is he cast doubt on God. He cast doubt on what God's requirements were for Adam and Eve. He said, did God really say that you may, must not eat of any of the trees of the garden? He, he, he kind of took what God had said and he twisted it a little bit and, and asked a question to try to to create doubt in Eve's mind. We know from God's command in chapter 2 that there was one tree that they were not to eat of, but, but here Satan tries to 
to broaden that and, and, and create doubt. And so Eve answers and says, you know, no, that there's just one tree that we're not to eat of. And if we eat of it, we're going to die. And so then Satan comes back and contradicted that and says, you know, no, you're, you're not going to die. You know, God is, uh, God's just, just trying to, to keep you from obtaining the, 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 the knowledge and trying to keep you from becoming like him. Again, casting doubt on, on what God had said. Trying to get her mind to move beyond the commandment of God and to move into the forbidden territory of actually thinking about the possibility of partaking of this fruit. And then his next move along with that was to try to cause Eve to doubt God's goodness and trying to get her to believe that God was keeping something back that was good for her and Adam. It's interesting to observe that in this temptation, much of what Satan said was true. Not the whole truth, but it was true. He said that they would not surely die. And you know, that was very true in a physical sense immediately. That fruit wasn't poisonous. When they partook of that fruit, they didn't just fall over dead. So there was truth in that. He also said that, you know, well, if you eat of this fruit, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to become like God. You're going to know good from evil. That was truth. They partook of that fruit and their eyes were opened. They lost their innocence and they did become like God in that they knew good from evil or they were aware of not only good, but they became aware of evil as well. And I believe that those characteristics continue to be Satan's pattern as he tempts us today. He tries to get us to doubt God's goodness. He tries to make us feel like God's withholding something that's good or that's pleasurable for us. I think that's a big one. When I think about my own life and as I observe other people, we have biblical standards that God has put in place in his word. And there's something in our heart that tells us that there's something out beyond that commandment that's going to bring me pleasure and bring me fulfillment. It's exactly what Satan told Eve here. If you go beyond what God has said, you're going to find pleasure and fulfillment. Satan also gives us, just like he did for Eve, he gives us truth, but not the whole truth. He gives us partial truth. He wants us to see the pleasure, the advantage of, of giving in to what he's tempting us with without considering the end results. 
just like he did for Eve. He wanted her to believe that there was a benefit in disobeying the commandment without her thinking about or recognizing what that disobedience would mean for her and for Adam and for their children and all of their descendants after them. He wants, he wanted her and us as well to think of the short-term advantages and the short-term pleasures, not the long-term effects of sin and the long-term separation between us and God. So we see Satan working there and today working in the same way. His work was just begun there in the Garden of Eden and it continues today after, in many ways after the same pattern. And then that brings us back to that verse that I said is a key verse for us in considering this subject from 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion is walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That has been his goal from the beginning of, of time. Peter here is, is likening Satan to a lion that is continually on the prowl looking for an animal to kill and to devour. Saying that that is the same is, is, is how, how Satan is seeking the souls of men. He's determined to capture and consume as many as possible. To take as many for his possession as he possibly can. Because he's in opposition to all things of God. Another thing that was interesting is the fact that Satan is in opposition to the spread of the gospel message. In Luke 8, verses 11 through 12, Jesus, this is the beginning of Jesus explaining the parable of the sower. And Jesus said, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So Jesus was saying there that Satan is actively working to pluck the seed, the gospel message that has been planted in people's hearts, lest they would be saved. Paul also spoke of the opposition of Satan to his work. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he said, Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. I believe these verses make it clear that Satan's work is not only in my heart and in your heart trying to draw us away from God and get us to fall into sin, but Satan's work as well is to hinder the spread of the gospel message. Again, I don't think I can stress enough that Satan opposes all that is of God. And so just as, as we read in Scripture that it's God's will for all men to be saved and to come to repentance, 
It is Satan's desire that all men might be lost. And I had to think about, we have a little something in our human nature that we can tend to try to drag other people down to our level, you know, if we're struggling with something. If we can drag somebody else along with us into, into something we're struggling with and gain a little company, uh, I don't know, it makes us feel better about ourselves or something. And that's what I see in Satan, that he has left the realm of God's blessing. He is in opposition to God's blessing. He is in a, is in a lost and hopeless position. And he is, he is intent and bent upon taking as many souls down with him as he can. Also, we need to be aware that in his working, Satan doesn't necessarily present himself to us in a way that is easy to recognize. In fact, Paul tells us that Satan and those that do his work are sometimes transformed or take the form of an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 for such, as are false, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I believe that uh, this should causes concern, causes to be aware, causes to be cautious. Because he's saying here that, that Satan himself is transformed or presented as an angel of light. And he talks about those who are doing his work, you know, false apostles, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They were teaching something other than the full gospel message of Jesus Christ, but yet they were presenting themselves as apostles of Christ. So we think of Satan as roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, whom he may devour, but yet, we need to realize sometimes he comes as something very different than that. Teachers who would appear to be working for God's kingdom, but not teaching the full biblical gospel message. I also want us to recognize that as we look at this, that it can be somewhat frightening, uh, alarming to think about the opposition of Satan and, and his power and the fact that he can come and, and, and send workers at, that would appear as angels of light 
or, or workers of light when in fact they're, they're trying to, to pull people into his kingdom. But yet we need to recognize that Satan is limited in his power. And a very impressive example of that is found in the account of Job. That's a fairly familiar account. I'm not going to turn there. I do have a couple of verses I'll read. But in Job 1 and also in Job 2, we see two accounts of the angels of God. I believe the King James Version says the, the sons of God presenting themselves before God, and Satan was there with them. And God asked Satan, you know, where have you been? He says, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. Undoubtedly, roaming the earth, looking for those that he can devour. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And I always viewed that a little bit as, as God bragging a little bit, you know, Job is a man after my heart, a, a man that I'm pleased with. And Satan accused God, or accused Job before God, of only obeying and serving God because of the blessing, the material and the physical blessings that God was blessing him with. And in return, God said, okay, you can test him. But both times, God put a limit upon Satan. Job 1.12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thy hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So that first time, God said, you can, Everything you, he has is in your hand, but you can't touch Job himself. And so we read about how Job lost everything he had, basically, including his children. Then in Job 2, verse 6, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So this time, God enabled Satan to touch Job's body, but not take his life. And Satan took Job, I would say, to the brink of death. But he was limited by God. Satan didn't have the freedom to go beyond what God Almighty allowed. So even though Satan is powerful and his goal is to ensnare every one of us, we need to remember that he is not unlimited in his power. As a created being, he is subject unto God and God's what God allows. We also can take comfort in the familiar verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able to bear. Excuse me, what you're able but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. God has promised that when Satan tempts, there is always a way out. You've probably heard people say, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. 
because God provided a way of escape. Again, Satan is limited in what he can do. God does not allow a temptation to come without also providing a way to overcome. God, in his mercy to mankind, has placed limits upon Satan and has given us what we need to be victorious over him. Part of that victory, or gaining the victory over Satan, is, is available to us today because of Jesus' work. You know, Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan. Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. This is speaking of Jesus. That through death he might destroy him that had, had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus came and suffered, according to this verse, so that he could destroy Satan. And I believe that this verse may be speaking somewhat of a future destruction that we read about in the book of Revelation at the end of time where we're told that Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. But I also believe that this speaks of the ability that we have through Jesus to break the power and the bondage of Satan in our lives today. When we commit ourselves fully to the Lord Jesus and to the power of his shed blood, the power of that blood that was shed to defeat Satan, we then can find the power to live above sin and temptation. The, the, in the book of James, we find a couple interesting things. And I see there... I'm going to ask you to to turn to it because this is an important verse. James 4. James gives us a formula to overcome Satan. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I want us to notice that there's two parts to this verse. Two parts to overcoming Satan and his power. First, he says we must submit to God. We have to accept and embrace God and his ways and be surrendered to him. We can't expect to find victory over Satan if we're not willing to surrender and submit ourselves to God in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says to resist the devil. We don't just give in. It's a battle. We fight that battle diligently every day. There's many ways that we can resist Satan. I just jotted a few down. We can refuse 
to dwell on or think about the temptations that come our way. You know, that's where it starts. It starts in our minds. And we can, we can choose to think about other things. We can call on the Lord for help. We can rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus. We can quote scripture as Jesus did when he was tempted. You know, there's different things that we have at our disposal that we can use as tools to resist the devil. And if we're going to quote scripture as Jesus did, we need to know scripture. So you know, that's, that's part of resisting him. Also from James, if we're going to, re- to resist the devil or we're going to overcome temptation, we need to overcome our own lusts, our own evil desires. James 1.14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We all have things of our fleshly nature that appeal to us. And those are the things that become the basis for our temptations. Have you ever thought about the fact that Satan does not tempt you with things that you really don't want to do? You know, I I think all of us could probably think of something that we, we just have no desire to do. Satan doesn't tempt you to go do those, those types of things. Satan tempts us to do things that appeal to our fleshly nature. Those things that, that hold a strong appeal. And so, James says that we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust, our own evil desires... And enticed. So we must, if we're going to be victorious over the attacks of Satan, we must, with the Lord's help, overcome those fleshly desires that they would not rule in our hearts, that they would not be the things that are forefront in our minds. Another verse that fits in with this that is, that is sobering is Ephesians 4, verse 27. Paul says, Neither give place to the devil. It's a very short little verse. That verse follows some admonitions that he gave for believers not to lie and not to sin in your anger. And then he says, neither give place to the devil. I believe that the implication here is that there are things that we can do that give the devil an advantage, that give the devil a place to work in our lives. A couple other translations render that, give no opportunity to the devil. And do not give the devil a foothold. And I I, I think 
that that is one of the things that I guess has gripped me the most on this subject is that there are things that I can do or things that I can that I might allow in my life which gives Satan the ability to work and to bring temptation Am I going to allow those things or am I going to run away from those things? You know, what, what do you think about? Our thoughts are where a lot of temptations begin. What do, what do you think about? What do you listen to? Because what you listen to creates in your mind your thoughts. What do you look at? What are you using the internet for? What about social media? Who are you following on social media? You know, what we do with those things can allow Satan to gain a foothold in our life. You know, nobody likes to be called a prude or a goody-goody, or some term like that. But it's better to gain a label like that about yourself than to provide Satan a foothold where he can, where he can work. I had to think of the story of a man. I forget where I got this. I think I heard a preacher tell the story one time years ago about a man who had a drinking problem and he was converted and delivered from that, that addiction. But on his way to and from work, there was a bar. And so that man would drive apparently significant distance out of his way to go home by a different route to avoid the temptation of stopping at that watering hole that he used to frequent. That is a man purposefully avoiding giving the devil a foothold in his life. If he would have said, oh, it doesn't matter, and driven past there every day, every day he's giving the devil a foothold to say, why don't you stop for old time's sake? Why don't you stop and see some of your old friends? But since he went another way, Satan did not have that foothold, that advantage in his life. So much more could be said, but I want us to realize that Satan is real and he desires to draw you and me away from God. And I ask, are you being vigilant in the fight against him? Are you actively seeking Satan's defeat? in your life. Through Christ, through his shed blood, through his sacrifice for us, we can be victorious. But it, victory does not come without us putting forth a daily effort and being vigilant against the foe that we face. And I'd like, just like to read in closing again James 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, 
and he will flee from you. God bless you as you go forth and do that.